be good. It's, uh, I don't think we've sung this song, have we, uh, Nancy, since we started as a church. So anyway, it was the first time we sang it as a church, but you know, it's not all, all the time that we're in Romans 9 either. So uh, when we look at the sovereignty of God, a song like that really, really speaks to our hearts. We are in Acts chapter 9. I invite you to turn there. We are in Acts chapter 9. No, we're not in Acts chapter 9, but we are in Romans chapter 9, Lord willing, and uh, starting at verse 14. Mary wasn't here last week, so I'll, I'll review a little bit of what we talked about last time. How'd you do that? Really? Wow. Okay. 914. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Father, we pray as we come to a passage that is, uh, is a difficult one, Lord, and it's one that uh, we ask for help and insight. You'd open our minds and our understandings, and, and as it applies, even our wills to your word. And so therefore, we ask the clarity in its preaching and understanding in its hearing, and she would bless your word this day in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the concept of fairness seems to be part of our DNA of being created, I believe, as image bearers of God. You know, there's something in all of us that want, want everything to be fair and to be done properly and without prejudice. You know, when our kids were young, with, with, I, they were learning this lesson of fairness. I don't think the stewards had anything to do with what I'm going to talk about. But you know, when it came time, time for mom to make pie, and then the pie was sliced, you know, it's inevitable that some pieces are going to be bigger than other pieces. And the ones who got the little piece are the ones that whine the most about how unfair it is in the cutting of the pie. So I learned a lesson from my mom, and that lesson was that if you uh, let the kids cut the, cut the pie, and then let they would actually have another person do, do, do the serving. And so you end up, uh, someone's trying to cut that pie as precisely as they can because they know they're not controlling the serving, someone else is, and they want to make sure they get a fair piece as well. And so that worked pretty well for us as, as a family. Uh, today it's carried over into our culture to an extreme. Uh, to, you know, you read in our, in, in, on the pages of the newspaper, or you see it on, on the television, the, the kind of the woke mentality of a 
Equality of outcome. Have you ever heard that? The equality of outcome. Not the equality of opportunity, but the equality of the outcome. Uh, in other words, all things are fair, so that when it's all distributed and everything is done, everyone gets a fair share. Almost a Marxist view of a distribution of wealth. I'll give you a recent example over the holidays. Uh, the new school, a college in New York City, it's an arts college, uh, the students decided to, rather than going home for the holidays, they would take over the college and take over the rooms. And they made one demand to the school, and the demand was this. We're not going to leave this college until you give everybody here an A. In other words, the whole school gets an A, and then we'll leave. And really what they were arguing for is what? An equal opportunity for outcome. They want the outcome to be the same, no matter how hard or how much you didn't work, or whether you went to school or went to class and didn't go to class, everybody would get their A for the fall of 2022. So it's no wonder when we come to a passage like Romans chapter 9, where we see that God is talking about sovereign election of some and not the election of others, Paul, even back in his day, would anticipate an objection. And the objection would go something like this. Well, this, this isn't fair, Paul. Uh, if God chooses one person to salvation and not another person, it would seem like that would be an unfair God, an unfair decision on his part. So we come to a section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, three chapters, that comes right before chapter 12, which is one of those another pivotal Chapters 12 starts the application. We've looked at the doctrine for, you're going to be looking at the doctrine for 11 chapters. But by the time you come to 12, then Paul moves into the practical outworking of all the theology he's been teaching us. But before he does that, there's three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, which form a section. He could have really finished at the end of 8, because he really began, he was finished preaching the gospel at that point, and which he came to, to preach. But in 9, 10, and 11, he's going to deal with he's, he was one last objection. One last objection that he could hear his Jewish readers thinking. And as being a good teacher, he wanted to make, make sure that he covered it. And we saw what that objection was last time. The objection was, um, he's start, starting to approach in, in chapter 9, is, uh, well, how do you explain, Paul, the unbelief of the Jews? I mean, if the Jews are God's promised people, if he made covenant with the Jewish people, then why is it the Jewish people have rejected the Messiah? Is it one of two things wrong? I mean, either he's not the Messiah, or God is not true with his promises. So what about the unbelieving Jews? How do you explain them, Paul? And... Uh, did God fail in his promise? We saw last time the answer is... No, God doesn't fail in his promises. God's promise to Israel, to Abraham, uh, is basically in absolute conformity uh, with, with how he's answering it and how he's working it out with his people and in such a way that God is not unfair. God's promise is consistent with the Jews' unbelief how do we explain the Jewish unbelief? Well, because God made the promise to what? A spiritual Israel, 
an Israel within an Israel. He didn't make the promises to an ethnic Israel or a national Israel or everyone who could trace their bloodline back to Abraham. He made, he made his promise to, to those who were the called, those who were the elect, those who were the chosen within Israel, the spiritual Israel. Uh, spiritual Israel within the nation of Israel. And so we come to the question, why would he choose one over another? Why would he let certain Jews uh, not be called, not be elected, not be chosen? And uh, here, here we come to Abraham. We saw last time had sons. Remember that Abraham was, uh, uh, had sons with, through Ishmael, through Hagar. He had Isaac, through Sarah. He had six th- sons through Keturah. And yet, uh, only one was chosen. So you add that up, that's eight. One of the eight was chosen by God. Uh, and then, then he went to Isaac himself, and, he, and they had twins. He and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. And this is even more awe-inspiring, because when you think of that, their situation is they had twins, born at about the same time, uh, before either one had done good or bad, even before they were born, God chose Jacob over Esau. Jacob have I loved. We closed with that verse last time. Esau have I hated. Therefore, God has not failed in his promises. His covenant promises were not to physical descendants of Abraham, but rather the covenant promises of God were to those who have been sovereignly chosen by God. A spiritual seed within a physical seed. So today we come in chapter 9 to answer a second objection, kind of a sub-objection in this ninth chapter. And it has to do with God's fairness. In light of everything he said so far, is God fair? Uh, Today, uh, if God chooses a remnant... If he chooses a smaller group, group and, and rejects the larger group, if he chose Jacob over Esau, if he loves Jacob more than he loves Esau, uh, doesn't that make God unjust? Isn't that unfair? Unfair to all those people he didn't choose. And, and this is the objection we often hear today, isn't it? Those of you who have been involved in uh, the doctrines of grace, Calvinistic circles, you're out there telling others about the glorious good news of God's sovereign election. And, and, and what you're going to hear right away, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. You know, if God chooses some to salvation, if he passes over others, that's not fair. Especially if, he chooses, if his choice is made before they were born. That's really not fair. Before they had a chance to do evil or good, well, that's not fair. This is one of the strongest objections people make to the doctrines of grace. The fairness of God and God being an unfair God, impugning that upon him. I think we all must admit that uh, to our human reasoning, it does have a ring of unfairness. Can we agree on that? I mean, even those of us who love the doctrines of grace, there is a little bit of a ring, a little bit of a kind of a clinch inside of each one of us that, uh, yeah, he chose this person, but he didn't choose that person. Is that fair? Is that really fair? Well, we think, well, gosh, and some of you might be thinking, don't we have a free will? 
That's really not fair. If we, you're saying we don't have a free will. Don't we have a choice ourselves? Is it fair that God makes a choice for us? And by the way, I'm from Wyoming, and Wyoming is the equality state. So especially here. How are we to understand a God who seems to be arbitrary and capricious? He seems to be randomly choosing one over another and giving us no reason other than the fact that it was his good pleasure to do so. And some of you might even be thinking, that's not my view of God. My God is loving, my God is just, my God is fair, and my God is not a God that chooses one and rejects others. Well, stay with us as we go through the passage today. Uh, Look at verse 14. What shall we say then, in light of that? Is there injustice on God's part? What shall we say then? In light of all that I've said so far, um, those of you who embrace the doctrines of election, what do you say then to those people who might tell you that sounds unfair? What do you say then? What do we learn from Paul's response here with, with, with such a strong denial? He says right off the bat, just so there's no confusion, is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. ESV says, by no means. It's the strongest negative you can actually write in the Greek language. May it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. God is sovereign. God does choose one over others. And yet by no means is he unjust. Those two, we're going to see, can be reconciled uh, by way of example. You say, well, Don, how do you reconcile the two? How do you reconcile the fact that on the one hand, God chooses, and then on the other hand, we see that God elects, but on the other hand, we, we, we see that God is also fair. Well, what I want you to see right at the beginning is this, and I think this is important. This is a question that if it was asked you, it was asked me, kind of in a public, private setting, we're talking with someone about the fairness of God. You know, we might immediately go to uh, reason, human reasoning. And what's interesting is Paul does not back up this teaching with his human reasoning and human arguments. He goes to Scripture. Let me show you in the Bible. Let me take you back to the Old Testament. Let me show you this is nothing new. Uh, he goes to the Scripture. And that should be a reminder to all of us. The Scripture alone is our authority. Amen. Period. Not philosophy. Not inward thinking of man. Not rationalism. Not, all the things that people want to bring in. It, it's God's Word alone. And so what he does is he takes us back to Genesis chapter 33. Actually, he's gonna, uh, we're going to see that for he says to Moses, and uh, we're going to see in Exodus 32 and 33 and 34. Let me give you the backstory first of all. You remember Moses, uh, so he's got the children of Israel who have left Egypt. They're at Sinai now. Where's Moses? He's up getting the tablets. And so he's getting the two tablets with the law on it. What are the Jews doing down below with Aaron? They're, well, yeah, they're, they're partying. They're, uh, they're actually uh, taking their gold rings and taking their gold earrings and their necklaces and they're melting them all down and they're making this golden calf. 
Now, an image of what they believe to be the true God, but yet by making an image of the true God, which is obviously uh, commanded against in, in, in the law of God. And so by the time Moses comes down, uh, God's angry. And actually, Moses is angry. And we see that uh, immediately, the order went out to put 3,000 men to death. 3,000 men were put to death for this idolatry. Did that, here's the question. Did that 3,000 equal the total number of people that were caught up in idolatry? So only 3,000 of the total were put to death. Uh, Moses made intercession for his people. He pleaded with God on behalf of the Jews. And when he, you know, at this point, we see Moses saying, God, please, spare the rest of them. Don't, don't, don't kill the rest of them. And he intercedes on, on their behalf. And then in Exodus 32, 33, he, as he pleads for mercy, he says, But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to a place about which I have spoken you to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So in, in the right day, at the right time, I'll take care of them. But I've heard your prayer. And so Moses uh, asked a question. 33.18, he says, Show me, I pray thee, God, show me your glory. And we see that, uh, that, that God responded. We see in verse 19, uh, God replies, and he says, And I said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to, to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now there's the passage that Paul's drawing from and bringing it into Acts chapter 9. In other words, he says, I, 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 what I'm saying is, I'll show mercy on whom I, I'll show mercy. I'm not going to show mercy on all the nation. I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I will not, and, uh, and, and that's my divine prerogative. And of course, Paul then writes in, in Romans 9, quoting this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I want you to see, as you look carefully at that verse in your Bible, this is God speaking. This is the word, these are the words coming out of God himself. God is, is declaring his sovereign election. And it's not a matter of injustice or justice or unrighteousness or righteousness. It's all about mercy. And as soon as you begin to tangle up God being righteous or unrighteous in his decision... And, and stop seeing that, no, it's not a matter of righteous versus unrighteous. It's a matter of mercy or not showing mercy. Then you'll see a clearer picture of what, what, what God is saying here through Paul. I want you to see that it's God himself who said this. No, it's not a matter of mercy. It's, it, 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 it's a matter of compassion and grace and mercy. It's not a matter of injustice. So... Let's look at the difference between injustice and mercy or a lack of mercy. If I said to you, let God be just among us right now, without any mercy, we want you to be fair, God. We want you to be just, God. 
be a just king. What would happen to us right now? Every one of us would be dead. Every one of us sinned, and we want justice. God says, okay, I'll give you justice. You want fairness in that, in that sense? We'll all die. And that's, that's the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death, and that's justice. And Paul's saying, we're not talking about justice here. We're talking about mercy. And God having mercy on us, mercy on his people, mercy on those whom he's saving. And what God extends to those who stand guilty before him. So remember, this is God's answer to the question of justice. Is uh, I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The mercy of God is not a matter of justice or fairness. It's a matter of simply showing mercy. So, if you stand guilty before God, and the whole world does, and the whole world is guilty before God, and the whole world is under the wrath and the curse of God, and the whole world, because of their sin, will go to hell. And then God comes along, being God, and He says, out of love and grace, I'm going to show mercy. Not to everybody, but I will show mercy. And then the question is, do we then have a right to say, well, God, you're being unfair. You see, you only say, are you going to be unfair if your focus is on justice and unrighteousness and God doing what is the right, righteous thing to do as a judge. But if your focus is on what Paul is saying here, but God is merciful. He's merciful. And he's merciful to one. He's merciful to a hundred. He's merciful, who knows, to tens of thousands. And if you should pass someone over and, and not choose this one or that one, is that one who's not chosen, is he being unfair to that person who's facing the eternal wrath of God because of their own sin? And the answer is no. Uh, I was reading this last week about the governor of Oregon. Now, the governor of Oregon caused quite a stir. Her name's Kate Brown. When she granted clemency to a killer, cold-blooded killer, serving life imprisonment without any parole allowed. Uh, he, mur- he murdered a 19-year-old teenage girl in, in 1994. He's been in prison since then. And she decided she liked something that he wrote or something that he said, and she gave complete clemency. All he had to do was wear an ankle bracelet for six months, and he was totally off. Now, she is, the, she is the, the governor of a state and has the authority, if she wants, to show mercy for whatever reason. Now, if she should pick that one murderer and let that one murderer go because of her mercy... Is she somehow being unjust to the rest of the hardened murderers that are in prison, still serving their sentence? No, they're all guilty. Just that one received mercy. And, and, and she was showing mercy on whom she would serve mercy. Now, God's mercy is different than, than this governor's because she had no basis for showing that mercy. Where God gives mercy because he sent his son who paid the penalty and, 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 and made a way for, for sinners to have peace with God. 
which she could never, ever do. If one cries out for God to be fair, what does it mean for God to be fair? If one sinner goes to hell, a fair God would require every sinner to go to hell. If a cry to God uh, for justice, justice requires everyone who's broken the law to receive the just penalty for breaking the law. All must die eternally. And so it's a, when it comes to fairness, the fairness that's based on, on righteousness is a fairness that brings guilt to everyone. But in the midst of that, if God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, from that group of guilty sinners who refused to bow their knee to God, continued to break the law all their life, are, are spending the, the, their eternity uh, in hell, if God should pull out a remnant, a few, uh, some here and there by election, he's still a good God and he's still a fair God because fairness does not touch at all on the issue of mercy. And he says, I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. His mercy and compassion are like Siamese twins, that uh, the compassion is the heart of God towards sinners. And his compassion is such, his love is such, that it results in mercy being extended to individuals. And then he's, they're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And what about those who do not receive mercy and compassion? They receive justice. And that's fair. The guilty receive justice. And in the midst of that, God in his kindness displays mercy to those whom he's going to display mercy. You know, I, I spent some time this last week, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't have time to really work it all out mentally as in the detail I would have liked to. But I think I have, and I talked to some of you, some of you about this to get your thoughts on this idea. Let's assume that someone says uh, God choosing someone to be saved is unfair, okay? That's the argument. Now, if you ask that person, okay, then what would be the fair thing for God to do? What would be the answer? That would be one of the answers, wouldn't it? Then everybody goes to hell. If we're going to be just going to, no mercy, everyone goes to hell. That, that's an option. God could do that. But that's not the only option. What are some other options? You know, if someone is thinking, oh, but God, I want God to be really fair in this. This election thing is not fair. So I want fair. And so what would be going through their mind as a way, a scenario for God to act uh, to show he's being fair in salvation? The other extreme. Universalism, they all go to heaven. That's exactly right. And so then you've got to work, work through that. And of course, you know about universalism, that is everyone saved. And so now all of a sudden you have believers and unbelievers saved and going to heaven. You have Hitlers and every other mass murderer in the, in the world going to heaven. Everyone's going to heaven. Uh, and so you have a cheap grace. And you also have a Bible that doesn't make any sense at all because if you're going to go with universalism, you have to deny almost every teaching of the New Testament about the gospel and about Christ, about heaven, about hell, about faith and no faith, repentance and no repentance. I mean, the Bible goes on and on speaking against universalism. So you've got to throw the Bible out with that argument. So anyone argues that, you know, you have to throw that out. 
And then he said, well, what, other, what, what are we left with? Okay, so we lose the God being God, and one of the things about God being God is he has to be sovereign. Anything that's over God in sovereignty now becomes God, and if it's you or me, we become God. So yeah, that's true. How about this in this scenario? The scenario that uh, God is looking down the time tunnel, remember we talked about this, and he can see from eternity past, okay, 2023, New Year. Uh, okay. Oh, John Smith's going to trust me and believe in me. So before the foundation of the world, I'm going to choose him. In other words, he can look and see what would happen in the future, and therefore in eternity past, he would make a decision who he's going to choose. And so the, the choosing would be conditional on what? On people performing or believing. Now, we, we, I, thought, I thought we ruled that one out already, but uh, if that's the case, then we have to do away with Romans 9. It's not for him that worketh or willeth and strives. It's not through the, the will of man. It, it, it's by the mercy of God. That's what we're left with. I, I really think if you press somebody in the issue of what is fair, you're going to find out that this really is the most fair option that God has given and that is a, one that allows for justice and one that allows for mercy and grace. And it's all being worked out in the sovereign plan uh, of a sovereign God. Um, see, mercy is, is part of the essence of who God is. And if you think of mercy as being not something when God disperses mercy, it just kind of goes out like the sunshine to everybody everywhere equally. His mercy, even though it's who He is and He's infinite, goes out like this. And, he, and He's merciful on those whom He is showing mercy. And, and it comes from the determinative will of God and His compassion of where He's going to display His mercy. And to whom He does and how He does and why He does, I don't know. I really don't. I don't think any of us really know that. I mean, He simply says it's because it's my good pleasure. This is what pleases me. This is what glorifies me. We're going to see. This is what shows my power. This displays my glory, we're going to see in just a minute. So the contradiction uh, of universalism is that uh, the Bible contradicts that all over the place. The Bible won't allow for any of the other teachings. It denies sola scriptura. You've got to throw the Bible out. The trust, uh, the entire word of God, uh, you have to throw it out. And pretty soon you're left with just this idea of universalism. So what does this mean? Verse 16, he says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion. So if salvation is, is based on the mercy of God alone, on those to whom he shows mercy, then that eliminates, Paul says, uh, human will or exertion from becoming a Christian. If God's mercy and compassion are on whom he, will, on whom he wills, then salvation is all up to God. He's the one who brings salvation. Uh, you can't strive to get in with, with, with your effort. You could walk down the aisle a hundred times and pray the prayer a hundred times, 
But if your heart has not been converted by God and he has not shown mercy upon you, you will never be saved. And on top of that, you have exertion. And I don't know what you put under that category, but any kind of work, any kind of effort, your salvation is not based on your will or your effort. And with that, I would put your religious deeds and any other good works you're trying to do, kind of muscle your way into the presence of God. He'll be pleased with you as he looks and smiles at what a good little boy or girl you've been in your life. And, and he says, no, 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 it's none of that. It's not of exertion. It's not of religious deeds. What decides whether a person's in the kingdom of God is not human will. It's man's desire or man's desire. It's not exertion or man's work. But look what he says, but on God, but on God who has mercy. Now, these are strong words, aren't they? I mean, this is kind of, he's being, bringing Scripture out. He's bringing us into a point of a corner, backing us in and showing us there's no way out except for the Word of God. And God is the one who does the saving. He's the one who gives the mercy. Mercy comes when man can't obtain salvation himself. Mercy is God's free grace. Your salvation is not the result of your desire or anything you can do. No works, no efforts, no trying to keep the law of God uh, or law-keeping will ever earn you favor with God. You say, what about my faith? Does that fall under will and exertion? I believe it does. Because we see in Ephesians 2 that even your faith, verse 8, it's a gift of, gift of God. Uh, you can't go around boasting and look what I did. I was smart enough to figure this one out. And I got in line and I believed. Look at me. That, 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 that's a work at that point. But even your faith is a gift of God. It's all of God's mercy. Now he gives a second illustration I want to look at next. And, and this is kind of just the opposite illustration of what he just gave us. It's the illustration based on Pharaoh in the Old Testament. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, this is his purpose now, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's for my name's sake. And so here's a second proof he gives to show us that it's, it's all of God and, and that God is not unfair. And all men do not receive the same mercy of God. Many think this is the only fair thing to do, uh, uh, just for God to do, but we're going to see here, he show mercy equally to everyone without exception. Again, Paul's going to argue from Scripture, not philosophy. He's going to, offer, he's going to argue from Scripture, not opinion, not ideas. And he says, let's go back and look at Pharaoh. And I'm going to try and pronounce his name right. Amen Hotep, I think, to the second. Does this sound good, uh, Jeremiah? He's a, he was probably who Pharaoh was. And uh, in Egypt, Scripture says, it uh, tells us that uh, this is God speaking. He's quoting Exodus chapter 9. So after the sixth plague, you know, the, the children of God have not left Egypt yet. He had not let them go. And after the boils on man and beast, it says in verse 15, For this very purpose I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, God, that I might show my power in you 
that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. For this purpose, I don't know what, going perhaps back to verse 13 and 14, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. For this purpose, explaining why God hated, hated Esau, I have raised you up. The phrase that uh, is used in the Septuagint in the sense of not raising up, and this is the reason why you came into this world and was born or created, but rather I raised you up as a man to put you in a position of authority. And in that position of authority, you're going to have a purpose for, for which I, I have predetermined. Literally, I've caused you to stand. I've brought you into the stage of human events for a purpose that I might show my power in you. And, of course, the power there was the deliverance of, of uh, the Jews out of, out, of, out of Egypt. You know, the true miracles that were done by the, you know, to surpass the counterfeits of the magicians. The power of the Red Sea departing and the children of Israel going through and, and the water coming back and drowning and the chariots and all, the, all of Pharaoh's army. That power... All that happened for my glory's sake, that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And I did that. I'm sovereign. And it's amazing how the word of this is spread all around the world, even down to today. I'm how many thousands of years later? I mean, here we are in Powell, or Cody, Wyoming, and we are talking about Pharaoh. And we're lifting up the name of God as something that happened thousands of years ago. Uh, the hand of God raising up and using a man for his purpose and his glory. Verse 18, so then he, will, he has mercy on whom he wills. And God had mercy on Moses and God had mercy on, on those whom he chose to have mercy. But here with Pharaoh, he hardened whomever he wills. Pharaoh here is a, kind of a unique illustration but, but he's not unique by himself. He's not a one-off in Scripture. He's a picture of, of a lot of people. And that is those whom God hardens. He's here as an illustration of all who are not chosen to salvation. To all whom God does not bring mercy. He hardens them. Uh, this, uh, this Greek word for harden is, uh, is a word, word that... Uh, He made hard, metaphorically is often used to talk about he made him stubborn and obstinate. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He made Pharaoh stubborn and obstinate. And we see that ten times with the plagues. He, he said no, no, no. He was stubborn. He was obstinate. But finally he let him go. Now the question that you, know, that, that you like to debate around this whole question of hardening of of Pharaoh's heart by God is, did, did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? And you go back and read the account in the Old Testament and you read about uh, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Now, Hodge, for example, in his commentary, he said, from these passages it is evident that it is a familiar scriptural usage to ascribe to God the effects which he allows in the wisdom to come to pass. And so he's basically saying that, uh, that God allowed for Pharaoh's heart to become hardened. He hardened his own heart. Uh, 
and, and there's no doubt that the Bible does talk about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Exodus 7.13 and 8.32 it says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Same in 9.34. But the point here in this verse is that if you read carefully, there's, there's really no, no, no room for fudging here in Romans 9. God is hardening his heart. That's the point that, that, that Paul's making. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we see that in Exodus 4.21, 7.3, and 7.13, where God is also doing the hardening. So you have different verses, God doing the hardening, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. How do you put those two together? Well, this is what I think is the best way to put this together. Paul is using hardening as if it is God who's doing the action. He's a sovereign God. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. But hardening here should be thought of as a judicial hardening where God has hardened that person's heart. And I believe even hardening to the point where it's not going to become, I don't want to say, unhardened, is that a word or not, but... Uh, you know, uh, he's going to turn, that, turn away from that. It's going to be a permanent hardening. John Murray in his commentary says it's, it's irretrievable once he hardens a heart this way judicially. There is no escape from God's sovereign, sovereign hardening the heart of sinners. In Acts chapter 2, verse 35, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of a lawless man. Now you see this over and over in Scripture. What I want to do is show you how these two come together, how it is it's God who does the hardening, and yet we see that Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. You know, you see examples of this. The one I just read in Acts 2 is where Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and as he's preaching, he's telling the Jews, he says, listen, you delivered this man up, this Jesus, and he was crucified, but it was all done according to the perfect, what, plan of God. But they did it. Well, they did it, but God the Father, what, purposed it and made it happen. You crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men, but who ultimately crucified Christ? It was the Father. And so what we have, I believe, is, is, is events in time and span. there's many of them in, in Scripture, where man is, in his sinfulness, making decisions. God hasn't made them be evil. God has not, doesn't give them an evil heart. They make evil decisions. That's their disposition. And then when that happens, as part of his hardening and judicial process of hardening, he pulls back his hand of grace and lets them go and become what he has purposed them to be, hard, irretrievably hard. God's not the author of evil. God does not aggravate, but is already there for his own purposes. How does God do this with, 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 with Pharaoh? Um, do you remember back in Romans chapter 1 we were talking about how God gave, gave us over to a uh, reprobate mind. Now, you remember how that progress went? It started off by sinfulness, sinfulness, and sinfulness. And finally you get to the point where God just gives them over to a reprobate mind. And that's a very similar process that I think you see taking place with Pharaoh. 
that you have with Pharaoh, his hard heart, his sinful heart, refusing to let the people go. And every time he said no, God was hardening his heart even more to the point where he was given over to a hard, unbelieving, unrepentant heart. He gave them up. He withdrew his restraining hand of grace. And the moment he withdraws his restraining hand of grace in any one of our lives, a hardening takes place. He leaves us to ourselves. There's no worse place you could be than be left to yourself in your heart. When we're in the flesh, the law stirred up motions of sin in us. Romans 8.13. You think of the story of Joseph and his, and his brothers. Genesis 50. I mean, they were, here they are, what? Throwing him into a hole and he's taken off into captivity. And Well, these are wicked brothers. They're doing bad things to his brother. And yet in Genesis 50, 20, it says that what? God's in control. And he made this happen. What? For the good. For the good that he had purposed. For for saving a people from starvation. God sent Joseph into Egypt through, through the evil of his brothers. But for God's ultimate purpose. I mean, even Satan... Satan with Job, think of the story there. It was whose idea was it? It was Satan's idea. And yet God says, no, this, I mean, God orchestrated the whole thing. And then why? So he would not deny him and bring glory to his name. When you're hardening your heart with sin, God will be hardening your heart judicially. And finally, you will reach a point where your heart is so hard, so callous, there will be no longer repentance or belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given over. You won't even be in the category of thinking this is unjust at that point. Now let's see if we can wind this up with some practical application. This is how God glorifies Himself. This is how a sovereign God glorifies Himself. He says, I'm going to show mercy on whom I I will show mercy. And I will harden those whom I harden. Now, you might be sitting here as an unbeliever and you hear words like that and you think, well, I've just been put in a straitjacket. What hope is there for me? I mean, are you saying God's hardened my heart and I'm, I'm lost, I'll never be saved? Are you saying that he's, He hasn't shown me mercy and therefore I will not become a Christian? It's all up to God or do I just wait and go to hell? I mean, what, what does this mean for me? Don't let this passage put you in a straitjacket. Here you see a glimpse of Christ. And here you see a glimpse of the cross. Because when mercy is brought, it's the mercy that's brought because of what Christ has done. Now we, we we're focusing on the sovereign side of things, but there also is a mean side of, of salvation as well. And the mean side of salvation is God is calling. He's calling sinners to come to Himself. And the focus there isn't, well, am I having mercy given to me or not having mercy? Am I hardened or not being hardened? Know this. Our God is a God that delights in mercy. He delights in compassion. And He delights in grace. 
Uh, he's a God that delights in forgiving. He's a God who delights in giving everlasting life. And so I would call you to come. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know if you're saved? How do I know if God has brought His mercy upon me? Well, you'd be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let that be your focus. Look at your sins and come with a heart of repentance. Be willing to ask for forgiveness of all that that has been disobedient to God. Look to the cross and see a Savior who laid down His life and, and took upon the wrath of the Heavenly Father that sinners might be forgiven, that God might have mercy on whom He's going to have mercy. And then I would call you to come, believe, trust, receive, turn from, and, and follow Christ as your Savior and your Lord. That's how you know whether or not God has had mercy on you or whether He's hardening your heart. But I want to warn you from this passage as well. There's, there, there is a warning that comes from Pharaoh. And this warning goes out to all of you who are not Christians, but who have never trusted in Christ, but you have, your heart today is not even stirred to come to Christ. You are here today so in love with your sin, you don't want to leave. You're enjoying it. You're basking in it. You're reveling in your disobedience to God. You're thumbing your nose at God. And every time you do that, you are hardening your heart. But remember, that's not where it stops. God is also in the process of doing what? As you harden your heart, and He pulls back His restraining grace, there's judicial hardness that's coming upon you that's there. And it's going to reach a point someday where it'll be irrevocable. That's the danger of rejection. That's the danger of not believing. You continue in your sin. You turn away from the free offer of the gospel week after week after week. And your heart heart gets harder every week. Do you realize, and I'm speaking to those of you here without Christ, and you say you were here last week, and you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ last week, and you walked through the doors, you sat in the chairs, and you heard Christ preached. And you walked out of those doors with the same heart of unbelief that you came in. And perhaps that's been going on for years in your life. Do you realize that when you left, you left with your heart a little bit harder than it was when you came? You didn't leave neutral. When you came to this week, you didn't come like you were last week. You've come with a heart that's even harder than it was last week because of God pulling back His restraining grace in you and upon you. And be warned. And you've met people like this. And maybe you know people like this in your own family. There are people who finally reach the point where their heart becomes so hard that there's an irrevocable hardness is that sin, a judicial hardness, and they will not come to Christ. Your heart will never be softer than it is today. Your heart will never be softer in, in this perspective. Than, now, now, God can break down the hardest of hearts. I believe that. But from our perspective, we need to be warned. That judicial hardness that comes on and all of a sudden we no longer delight in the things of God. We no longer delight even coming to church. We no longer delight in hearing His will. We, our heart has become callous to sin. Oh, beware. That, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So don't harden your heart. 
turn to Christ and seek repentance and forgiveness. He's a God who delights in being merciful. So, Father, we close with those words, taking them and asking you to take those words and as they came out of my mouth and from the pages of Scripture, oh, Lord, would you take and liven them to do whatever it is you want to do with us? Oh, Lord, may these words be words that would take the sinner that's hard and bring them to a point of brokenness, humbly coming to you, the one who made them and the son who died for, for his people and trust in Christ to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. Lord, for those who are reveling in their disobedience, enjoying their disobedience, and you know, maybe like the, the Jews that were making golden calves and doing things their own way, oh Lord, I pray you would help them see their need. Oh, may the warnings of your word go out. Soften their hearts, Lord. Help them see the, the beauty of Christ. May whatever sin they're involved in seem just so ugly compared to the holiness of the God who made them. Oh, Father, if they lack faith, would you give them the gift of faith today to believe, to trust? If their pride is so strong, Lord, that it's keeping them back from just coming as a small child, Lord, I pray you would humble them before you. Make all of us like little children who love you and trust you. Lord, not only here in this life, but the life to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.